John chapter 6, 30 to 35, the bread of life. 6, verse 30. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us. Grant us everything we must understand from this section of Scripture. And teach us, Lord, not to be like these people who asked about a sign, who wanted manna, who wanted food. Grant to us, Lord, a different heart. Grant us a heart that wants the spiritual food, the true food, the bread of life, Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we never be satisfied. May we never be content with what we do know and understand of Christ, but press on. May we press on and desire even more. May we hunger and thirst for righteousness For your word says they shall be satisfied. May that be our true satisfaction. May that be our only hunger and thirst to know Christ, to know his word and to please him. Grant us this kind of heart as we study this passage and not like the heart of the people who interrogate Christ. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. The people we mention here in chapter 6, verses 30 to 35, are the same people that ate the bread and the fish miraculously provided by Christ in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. And as a consequence of that, as a consequence of them eating it, they wanted to make Jesus a king and do it by force. They wanted to arrest him and put him on a throne and insist that he be their king, that he might provide for them all that they wanted, physically speaking. They did not understand the true purpose of the coming of Christ. Then when Christ and his disciples moved from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side and traveled by boat to the other side, and Jesus travels miraculously to the other side, when this happens... They are so eager about the physical world and so eager to have another miracle performed to fill their stomachs that they follow the disciples and Christ to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus understands this. Jesus knows exactly their true motives. That's why when they are amazed that Christ arrived there, even though they didn't see Christ in the same boat with the disciples, they are amazed that he arrived there Jesus does not answer their question. In verse 25, they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? We know the disciples went into a boat, but we know that you fled from us 
and you went away, and you went away for a time. But now you're here. How did that happen? We didn't see you. We didn't see you in a boat. We didn't see you walking. We didn't see you in any way. How did you get here? Jesus knew with that question not to answer the question because the question was irrelevant. The question was a detour. The question had no pertinence to what Jesus needed to tell them. So he avoids answering that question and he gets straight to the heart of the matter in verses 26 to 29. He tells them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're not seeking me because you saw signs, miracles from God, and now you believe the word of God and, it, and indeed the word of life that is Christ himself. It's not as though you saw the miracles and that caused you to believe in me. That didn't happen. But you saw the miracles, you enjoyed the miracle of being filled, and then you want more of the same. You don't want me, you want more of the same miracles to provide for your physical needs, to provide for your own bellies. Verse 27 Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Christ exhorts them not to work for the food which perishes, but for the food of eternal life that produces eternal life. He clearly tells them he's not talking about physical food in verse 27. He's talking about spiritual food but they don't understand in verse 28. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Don't work for physical food, but work for spiritual food. Seek for spiritual food. They want to know what is the work that they must do, but they're still thinking, not spiritually, but physically, because Jesus tells them how it is they are going to do the spiritual work in verse 29. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. The spiritual work of God in the hearts of these people would be that God works in them to believe in Christ. That is clearly stated in verse 29. He directly and clearly states that the work of God is for them to believe in Christ. Verse 29, Jesus is reiterating the fact that they must have their minds focused on spiritual things, not physical things. Now we pick it up at verse 30. Do they learn their lesson? No, they do not learn their lesson. Let's see how they refuse to believe. Verse 30, they said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They said, what then do you do for a sign? Did they not already see a sign earlier in the chapter? Did Jesus not say already in verse 26, you seek me not because you saw signs? Was it not also that in the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem from chapter 2 onwards, that they were there and they heard of him and they saw his signs. He did signs when he was at the feast in chapter 2. 
And many people believed in him because he performed the signs in chapter 2. So these people are not new to witnessing, to seeing the miracles of Christ. And yet they have the audacity to say, what then do you do for a sign? They cannot shake that off. They cannot get rid of that in their evil heart that they want to insist that Jesus continually, constantly provides signs for them before they believe, which is no different than others we have read about. Do you remember John chapter 4? Jesus, with the woman of Samaria, was asking her for water, and he quickly, Jesus quickly turned the physical water into spiritual water for himself. And it took her some time before she finally understood and believed. But initially she's thinking, Jesus has some miraculous way of providing physical water for her so that she's never thirsty again. That's not what he meant. He was talking about spiritual water himself. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 as well. He performed a miracle on the Sabbath day and the Jews objected to that. And he connects the performance of the miracle to himself and they refuse to believe. They refuse to understand and believe. Nicodemus. We might say, well, this is the people generally. No, Nicodemus, he was a scholar. He was a teacher. He was the teacher of Israel. And Jesus was teaching him that he needed to be born again. He doesn't understand. He thinks Jesus is talking about physical rebirth. Physical rebirth when Jesus wasn't talking about physical rebirth. He was talking about spiritual birth. And he was so uh, lacking wisdom and understanding on this that Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You don't believe. Why is it that you cannot make this connection between the physical and the spiritual? Don't you understand that the spiritual is much more important than your physical life? So when people are fixated on the physical, what do they persist in doing? God has to prove himself to them. That's why they say, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's no different. It's no different than today. There will be people who will insist that God provide for their every prayer, that God provide for their every whim, their every request, anything that they think that they need in life, anything that they want in life, if God does not provide for them, then they will not believe. And the moment God takes something away from them, they walk away from God. They don't believe. God is there for them to provide every whim, Everything that they could ever imagine, they want God to provide. And if he doesn't, they walk away from him. They are no different. The people of today, they want to see a sign. Also, in terms of the miraculous, specifically the miraculous, whenever we preach the gospel to a skeptic, what does the skeptic often say? Well, if God were here, if God would appear... If Christ were right here and talking to me, if he performs a miracle, 
If I hear the voice of God, if I see a vision of God, on and on. They say, if God does that for me, then I will believe. That's blasphemy. And that also shows that they don't understand their wicked human heart. They are saying, if God were to appear, then they would believe. Well, didn't God appear right here to these people in John 6? And they didn't believe. God appeared in human flesh right there to them and manifested His glory by the many miracles and by His true doctrine, His true teaching of the Bible. He showed and proved that He was from God and in fact God Himself among them, yet they refused to believe. What about in the time of Moses? Are we any different than the people in the time of Moses in the wilderness or even in the land of Canaan under Joshua and the others? No, we're no different. And yet they refused, as it says in Psalm 78. They would believe for a time, they would grumble and then receive their request for a time. And then once they got what they wanted, they would grumble again. They would reject again. They would resort to idolatry again, resort to immorality again. They just go back to their old ways. They would never, ever truly endure and give up what they should reject. They claim it for a a moment. They claim it temporarily. They have temporary joy, temporary happiness, but not permanent joy. Just like the parable of the sower and the seeds. That the people who are temporary have a temporary manifestation of something that the Bible expects of them. But not a permanent manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. So when they ask Him here for a sign... They are actually saying it in utter unbelief, staunch unbelief. They're asking him. They are not being genuine. They're not being forthright. They are being adamantly opposed to Christ. They add to their sin in verse 31. Verse 31, they add by saying, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They take here a quote from, it's most likely a compilation or uh, a combining of quotes from Exodus 16, verse 4, Psalm 78, 24, and other places. From Exodus 16, 4, Psalm 78, verse 24. They quote from the Old Testament. That's why in your Bible, you may have, according to your biblical edition, a capitalization of the passage they quote. As it is written, then capitals, for he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. You may have capitals there or a footnote that takes you to Exodus and to Psalms. So they quote a passage from the Old Testament. But notice, firstly, before they quote... Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. What do they assume? They assume that because their ancestors, their fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, that their fathers, their ancestors were righteous people, were believing, were living a harmonious life under Moses, were very compliant to Moses, that they were believers, that they were true believers that they were living a godly life under Moses' leadership, both in Egypt and in the wilderness, and even the land of Canaan. 
But were they that way? No. We saw from Exodus 16 and Psalm 78 that they were not that way. So what they do is they cite their fathers in a wrongful way. They cite their fathers as though their fathers, their ancestors, were righteous people, godly people, who did everything Moses wanted them to do and everything God commanded Moses to tell them to do. But they weren't that way. They weren't that way. And Christ knows this. Christ knows this. They were a rebellious generation, a generation whose spirit was not right before God, as Psalm 78 says. They were wicked people. So there's no point citing their ancestors. Why don't they cite, why don't they cite Moses? In the sense of, why don't they say, use the example of Moses? Why don't they use the example of Joshua and Caleb? Why don't they use the example of any other godly people in the Old Testament? Why do they simply say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness? As though God gave them the manna because they were righteous. We know God gave them the manna in His mercy, not because they were righteous. Because they were grumbling and longing for the meat and the food of Egypt in Exodus 16. That was the premise. That was the circumstance. They were lacking and they grumbled. Instead of lacking and praying to God and making a sincere request to God and even to the prophet of God, instead of doing it that way, they grumbled, they complained, they murmured in the wilderness against Moses and ultimately against God. So they cite their fathers wrongfully in the wilderness. Not only do they cite the fathers wrongfully in the wilderness, they take this quote as though the quote helps them. They take this quote, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They cite the scripture out of context. They cite the scripture correctly, but they take it out of context. The words are correct, but the meaning of them, the context of them is incorrect. When God gave them bread out of heaven, when He gave them manna out of heaven, miraculous bread out of heaven to eat, was it because He was pleased with them? No. Was it because they were good people? No. He gave it to them because they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He intended to use them in order to bring about Christ into the world and our salvation. Yes, he used them in that way, but they weren't righteous. So here, he gave them bread out of heaven in the middle of a passage like Exodus 16, or in the middle of Psalm 78, or in the middle of Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, Psalm 105 and verse 40. This is, in these passages, we have this recollection that God provided for them, bread out of heaven. But if we take all of these passages, the passages just named, Exodus 16, Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, all of these passages, it's in the context of God being gracious and merciful to an obstinate, stiff-necked, grumbling people who refuse to believe. So when they quote the Bible, it doesn't help them. 
This is common. It is common that people will vaguely, wrongfully cite the Bible, such as our fathers and such as he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They will vaguely cite the Bible, briefly here or there, and take the Bible out of context to justify their beliefs and to justify their behavior. That's what they do. They wrongfully use the Bible. So it would would be incumbent upon us whenever that happens, whenever someone says something, and you know it has a ring of error. You know it doesn't sound right. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is telling you, or perhaps it is a combination of the Spirit and your knowledge of the Word. Something is amiss. Something doesn't sound right. Ask yourself the question, where is that in Scripture? Go find it in Scripture and read the context. And when you read the context, you will find most often that whoever cited that verse cited it incorrectly, out of context. Always do that. And if you're in a conversation, say, sir, do you know where that is found in Scripture? Can we look that up in Scripture and can we read it in context and see if it actually says what you say it says or if it actually means what you say it means? And the moment you do that, you will find the truth will rise to the surface. Well, Jesus, he refutes them. Look at verse 32. Jesus refutes them in verse 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. It's not Moses who provides bread out of heaven, but the true bread comes from the Father of Christ, my Father. We notice here, Christ is not denying that Moses was performing a miracle or Moses announced a miracle. He's not denying that. He's not denying that they actually did eat physical bread, material bread, miraculously provided for them for 40 years. That's not the issue. The issue is this contrast between the ultimate source of eternal life or the ultimate source of true bread for eternal life. Jesus turns it from the physical to the spiritual to bridge this gap in order for them to understand that His Father in heaven is the originator of spiritual bread, which He calls here true bread. Not that Moses had false bread or that Moses never pointed people to Christ, but He's saying, I want you to understand the ultimate origin of true bread out of heaven that you need, the spiritual bread that you need, comes from my Father. He's saying it comes from my Father, my Heavenly Father. And remember, when he says my Father, he is claiming a unique relationship to him and deity. John 5, 17 and 18 My father is working until now, and I myself am working. The Jews, therefore, were seeking to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 5, 17 and 18. He's saying, 
Do you not understand that Moses' purpose was not contrary to what I'm saying? Moses gave you this physical bread, but remember, Moses' point was to show you the true bread that comes from my father. And in verse 33 to 35, it is in the person of Christ. He is indeed the true bread. The contrast. Now, we might also ask, did Moses, did Moses preach Christ? When the manna was given, when the rituals were given, when the water was given, when anything was given in the Old Testament under Moses, was Moses teaching them, don't just look at this physical food, but look beyond the physical to the unseen spiritual food. When Moses gave them water to drink, was he teaching them, don't just look at the water, but think about the water of life, eternal life, that is Christ. When Moses offered sacrifices and taught the people to offer sacrifices, was he saying, look beyond these animals to Christ himself, who will die for your sins. He will come into the world to die for your sins. When Moses built the tabernacle, when he erected the tabernacle with all of the furnishings of the tabernacle, the, ta- the, the table of um, uh, candlestick, the lampstand, when he made that, the altar of incense, when he made the sacrificial altar, a burnt offering, when he made these altars and these various objects in the sanctuary, was he telling them to anticipate Christ and look at the spiritual true meaning beyond the physical objects? Yes. Yes, indeed. And this is what they miss. They miss it here in the time of Christ because Moses was preaching it. So they didn't even understand Moses correctly. Few in Moses' day understood him correctly. Let's see examples within Moses of Moses teaching these kinds of spiritual, eternal, heavenly truths. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Exodus 25, 9. Exodus 25. Let's actually read 8 and 9. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. Just so... You shall construct it. The tabernacle has a pattern, he says. It has a pattern. Not only the tabernacle, but its furniture has a pattern. Look at 25.40, Exodus 25.40, the last verse. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Make them after the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Pattern after what? Pattern after what? Look at Exodus 31. Exodus 31. In reference to the Sabbath day, the Sabbath commandment. Why the Sabbath commandment? Exodus 31, 
12, 31-12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. What does he call the Sabbaths in verse 13? He says, this is a sign between me and you. Why does he call it a sign? If it's a sign, what does it signify? If it's a pattern, what does the pattern signify? What is it illustrating? He says it again in verse 17. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. A sign of what? Another example, Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Remember, all these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are written by Moses. So Moses the prophet, he was told by God to write these things and to preach these things and the true meaning of these things so that they have reference to eternal life in Christ. Leviticus 25, 23. 25, 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. He says, the land is mine. You are but aliens and sojourners with me. But wait a minute. When was God a sojourner with the people? It says in Exodus 25, 8, we saw it. Construct a tabernacle to me that I may dwell among them. So God was sojourning with them, right? At least in the tabernacle, right? In that tangible way, physical way in the tabernacle. But he also says that you are aliens and sojourners with me. In what sense are the people of Israel aliens and sojourners? Now remember, in Leviticus, Moses is teaching them how they should look at and conduct the sale of the land, the treatment of the land, the land of Canaan permanently or forever while they live in that land. So the generation of Moses goes into the wilderness and then that wilderness generation is supposed to deal with the land according to the will of God. And while they are in that land of Canaan, their homeland, their promised land, right? Their native land, how are they still supposed to consider it? They are aliens and sojourners in the land of Canaan. Generation after generation, even if they are born there, they're still supposed to look at themselves as aliens and sojourners. So then, why does he say that? In what way? Because their home is heaven. Their home is heaven. They have an eternal resting place, an eternal promised land, not this present world. So these are evidences that Moses was teaching the people about eternal life and bridging the gap between 
the pattern of things and the reality of things. The pattern of things and the true meaning of things. The pattern uh, or the, the sign of things and the signification of these things. Signification of these things. What does it mean? Or if we're aliens, if we're aliens here, then when are we going to be citizens? And of what are we citizens? We are citizens of heaven and aliens on the earth. In John 6, in John 6, this is what Jesus meant by making this contrast between Moses and the true bread that his father provides. Why will you refuse? Why do you refuse to bridge the gap from the physical to the spiritual world? And look at the benefit. Verse 33. John 6, 33. What is the benefit? Verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God. Why should we be seeking this true bread from heaven? Because this comes from God, who is His Father. Verse 32. My Father is the same as God in verse 33, so Jesus clearly identifies the origin of it and the one who has a position of authority to say what this true bread is. It's the bread of God, the bread of his own father. He is the one who is declaring to the people that it has come out of heaven and the benefit gives life to the world. Life to the world. Who doesn't want life? But they don't understand. Verse 34, they said, therefore to him, Lord evermore, give us this bread. Lord evermore, give us this bread. They keep thinking physically. They want a material benefit when Christ is trying to give them eternal life, eternal life to the world. Meaning to all those that are his sheep, all those who have been chosen, who will believe in Christ in the world, this life belongs to them. This life has been provided for them. But they don't understand. This is the amazing thing. That one could preach time and time again about spiritual benefits and it never registers. The human heart that is cold, stone cold, that's dead, that is bent on sin, refuses even though someone preaches again and again, thousands of times, shouts and screams, does whatever he needs to do to get the man's attention. He will never believe it. He will always say, whatever you might be saying, that might have a color of spiritual things. I want nothing to do with it. I want whatever I want in this world. I want material things. I want things that are going to satisfy my eyes, my ears, my mouths, my hand, any other part of my body. I want those things and I don't want the spiritual things. So don't talk to me about those things. This is the way the human heart is. It should not surprise us, however, 
Who is it without any sin rejected all that God had to provide for them physically and spiritually? Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, they both were there, created perfectly, sinlessly. They had righteousness, original righteousness. They had everything set before them in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. And yet they walked away from it. Yet they rejected it. So it shouldn't surprise us that it is very difficult for people to believe in spiritual truth. Don't let that alarm us and surprise us. Verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. If Jesus was unclear, if Jesus was unclear up to this point, Jesus removes all ambiguity in verse 35. I am the bread of life. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about myself. I am the one that you need. I am the one. Now, actually, they weren't so uncertain because after he provided in chapter 6, verse 14, after he had provided their food, what did they want to do in verse 14? When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They knew he was sent by God. They knew that there was a godly, heavenly connection between him and God. They knew all that. They knew it quite clearly. They knew it so clearly that they wanted to make him king. And they called him the prophet, the prophet that Moses preached would come into the world. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 20, there they knew that he was the fulfillment of that. But they quickly dismissed the spiritual reason he came into the world and they went straight to the physical. So even though people might say, well, I don't understand what you're saying. Actually, in many ways, they do understand what we are saying. When they claim not to understand, they really do understand. They understand enough that their understanding holds them guilty before God. So what does Christ do? In order to remove all ambiguity, He tells them straight, I am the bread of life. You don't need to go elsewhere. You need to go to Me. You don't need to trust someone else. You need to trust Me. You don't need to ask anybody else. You need to ask Me. You don't need to pray to anyone else. You need to pray to me. I am the bread of life. Jesus insists that he himself is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. 
John 17, 3. Eternal life is only here, in Christ. The word he uses is bread of life. He is the bread of life. Remember, he's not talking about physical matters. He's talking about spiritual matters. So when we understand this about Christ, throughout the book of John, even throughout his whole ministry, all of his ministry, we understand his primary concern is spiritual truth. Then from 35 till the end of the chapter, we understand he is not talking about the people eating his physical body, either in a cannibalistic way or in some other way that's magic and hocus-pocus, such as we find in Catholicism, that once the priest prays over the elements, then the elements become the literal body and blood of Christ. They call it an unbloody sacrifice. The wine is wine. It doesn't change after the priest prays, but they say it is the blood of Christ, but it's unbloody. There's no blood there. It's, nothing has changed in the makeup of the wine, but we're supposed to believe it's the blood of Christ in a literal way. And the same thing with the bread. The bread is literally that. But that's not what Christ meant. This is an example of how people will take a verse, like from John chapter 6, take it out of context and use it for their false teaching. Jesus did not mean what the Catholics say he meant. It's clear if you read this whole chapter in its context. Absolutely not. He did not mean that. He meant that he is the bread of life and they should partake of this bread by believing in him. By believing in him. That's what he meant. Verse 35. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When he called himself the bread of life, he didn't mean anything physical. He meant it spiritually. When he says, he who comes to me, coming to Christ is equated with believing in Christ. He says so right there in verse 35. You know how the scriptures are, are prone to using parallelism to describe something. Parallelism to describe some things. It will say something positively in the one line in the same verse and then negatively in the next line of the same verse. If you read the book of Proverbs, it happens all the time there in the book of Proverbs. Something is asserted and then something is denied. Or something is denied and then something is asserted. It happens that way. And that's what's happening right here. Nobody can deny that believing that he is the bread of life or coming to him re re revolves around faith in Christ. He is the source of eternal life. He is the food that endures to eternal life. He is the drink that makes one not thirsty ever again for eternal life because one receives it and one is satisfied by it so that he does not ever have to look to someone else. 
If you have partaken of Christ, if you have taken a drink of Christ, then you don't need to go to anybody else. You don't need to go to Krishna. You don't need to go to Buddha. You don't need to go to Muhammad. You don't need to go to Joseph Smith or Charles Russell or anybody else. You don't need to go to anybody else for eternal life. The eternal life resides in Christ and in Christ alone. So believe in Him. Believe in Him that He is completely satisfying. He is completely sufficient to give you eternal life. Not Christ plus somebody else and not Christ plus even yourself, your good works. It says here, He who believes in me shall never thirst. So believe in him. Believe in him. By this statement, Jesus removes any possibility that one can be a Jew and go to heaven without believing in Christ. After all, weren't the people who were in this audience, weren't they Jews? So he's explaining to the Jews the, the necessity of them believing in him. So a theology that says Jews can go to heaven without believing in Christ is false. It's a false theology. What about a theology that says that people can go to heaven in other religions, in other parts of the world, if they don't believe in Christ? What if they say that? This is called inclusivism and universalism. Inclusivism and universalism. Inclusivism, that since Jesus, they say, since Jesus died for every person, that person does not have to believe in Jesus because God loves him and he'll go to heaven because Jesus died for him. Even if he doesn't believe, even if he never hears of Christ, he will go to heaven because he did good, he did the best he could with what knowledge he had. He did the best he could with what knowledge he had, even if that knowledge is devoid of ever hearing of the name of Christ. That's inclusivism. And universalism says that everyone, including Satan and all the demons, go to heaven. Universalism, I like to call it satanic salvation, which means that Satan himself will go to heaven. And if Satan goes, all of his demons go. And if all of his demons go, then Joseph Stalin goes, and Mao Zedong goes, and Adolf Hitler goes, and on and on and on. All of these people will go to heaven in that doctrine because they say Jesus died for everyone, God loves everyone, therefore they will go, even if they never believe in him. But that's contrary to this verse which says, he who believes in me shall never thirst. It is required of anyone who goes to heaven to believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. That he is the word that became flesh. God who became flesh. John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. He is the only savior of the world. Before me there was no God formed, and there shall be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides 
Me. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. There is no other way. There is no other Savior except by believing in Christ. Do we believe in Christ? If we believe in Christ, then our values, our attitudes, our words, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds will begin to change. From the time we truly believe until the time that we meet the Lord. But if that is not happening to us, then we do not have true belief. If we still love our old sins, we still practice our sins, we still indulge in our old sins, and we have no guilt, we have no desire to overcome, we don't confess and repent, we don't do what's necessary to curb our, our ability to sin, to put controls, fences up, to prevent ourselves from sinning in those ways. If we're not doing that, then we do not truly believe. But if we truly believe, we begin to overcome them. We begin to hate them. We begin to see our sins the way God sees them. He sees them like a filthy garment. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. He sees them like a filthy garment. He sees them like the vomit of a dog. 2 Peter 2, 22. 2 Peter 2, 22. Like the vomit of a dog is our sin. We must see our sins like that. He sees our sin like the filth and the mire of a pig. Not the pigs that we raise on farms, but a pig that is let loose and able to go to the trash heap and into the filth. That's the way our sin is. And that's the way we must see our sin. If we believe, we begin to reject those. We don't go back to our old ways. And if we do, like a dog that returns to its vomit and a sow that returns to wallowing in the mire. That's who we are. So let us truly believe. Let us have our mind fixed on heaven. Set our minds on the things above, not on the things below. Let's not be merely looking after how we are going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we are going to live, what people think of us, getting a large following, making millions and millions of dollars. That's not the way of the Christian. The way of the Christian, he has his mind set on spiritual things. He puts true faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.